Well, good morning. I'm finally back to Moses. So we're going to read from Exodus chapter 5, verses 1, through Exodus 6, verse 8. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. The same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are, to, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you too. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my, man, my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they reside, resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. 
I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. That could stop right there. <laughs> At the start of chapter 5, we see Moses doing exactly what the Lord told him to do. And Moses felt empowered. He was coming off a spiritual high, having met with God and Israel going along. And he thought that because he was doing God's will, Pharaoh would roll over and let Israel go. But to Moses' shock, Pharaoh had other ideas. He said, who is your God? I don't know your God. And not only did Pharaoh not let Israel go, he made life more miserable. Now Israel was to make bricks. But without Egypt providing the straw that was the essential ingredient in mud bricks. Work Israel harder, Pharaoh said. And when Israel could not meet their quotas, the overseers of Israel were beaten without mercy. People were dying, which didn't break Pharaoh's heart one bit because he thought there were too many Hebrews in Egypt to begin with. There is a simple truth here that many Christians miss. If you go after evil evil will come after you. The devil, the powers and principalities, the forces of oppression never just roll over. Resistance will come. You can count on it. Evil never gives up ground without a fight. Pharaohs just do not give up their whole army of slaves. Which leads us to a second truth. When God calls people to a higher or deeper walk with Him, Life often gets harder, not easier. Things, at least externally, often get worse. The Bible's full of examples. Elijah sees the fire fall from heaven. The next thing you know, he's hiding in a cave all depressed. John the Baptist gets to baptize Jesus the Messiah. The next thing you know, his head's on a platter. Paul gets revelations that no man has ever seen. The next thing you know, he's got a thorn in the flesh. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, A wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are, listen to this, many adversaries. He puts them together. A wide door for ministry, many adversaries to overcome. Resistance and opposition, Paul writes, is a confirmation very often that God is work, not a sign that we've missed God's will. Moses thought the opposite. I've done what you asked, he told God, and nothing but trouble has followed. We're in worse shape than ever. Something must be wrong with my presentation. One writer said that when we follow God, we expect a call. And then after that call, a deep feeling of peace about it. And based on that deep feeling of peace, we obey. And smooth sailing takes place as God makes a way. That is not what happens. Instead, biblically speaking, we get a call, usually followed by abject terror. Then we obey as God drags us kicking and screaming to do His will. Then we get bigger problems, more terror, second thoughts, just like Moses. And then we repeat this whole cycle several times until finally we surrender and have a deeper faith somewhere down the road. For millions and millions of Christians throughout history, following Jesus has never been a way to an easier life. In fact, 
It's had the opposite effect. Following Christ made people objects of ridicule and a target of persecution. Jesus taught us that if we really follow him, get ready to get in hot water. The devil, the devil will come after you. The powers and principalities will oppress you. A large of hunk of humanity will despise you. And perhaps even family and friends just may turn on you. Moses was learning that obedience gets rewarded, but often after you're put through hell first. And never forget, our real rewards are not waiting for us in this world anyway. If you think following Jesus is the great way to build your portfolio, I have very, very sad news for you this morning. Another part of the story of Israel and Egypt, Moses and Pharaoh is that we get a front row seat to see just how oppression works. Why do nations oppress? For the same reason Pharaoh did it. He wanted more power politically and militarily, and he wanted more affluence and wealth for Egypt and himself. So he enslaved Israel in order to get those things. In those days, that's how you built empires. You enslaved someone or conquered someone and took free labor. But in order to use people in such a way, in order to oppress people, and to get your people to back you up, you must first dehumanize the people you're going to oppress. Pharaoh was a master at this. These Hebrews, Pharaoh states in an earlier chapter, must be enslaved because they are dangerous. They are a threat to national security. If an enemy attacks us, Pharaoh said, the Hebrews will join our enemies, and there's a lot of them to join. These Hebrews are enemies in waiting. In today's text, Pharaoh adds to the character assassination of Israel. These Hebrews are ungrateful, and they are lazy. They don't want to work. They are liars. They're lying about going on a trip for three days. They lie about everything. They must be put in their place and kept there. By the time Pharaoh is done, he has created a whole collection of false stereotypes about what a Hebrew is. He has created a whole mythology defending the oppression of Israel by Egypt. These no-good Jews deserve to be treated the way we're treating them, Pharaoh says. And Egypt bought it. All of these stereotypes were created to justify the unjustifiable, they were created to defend the indefensible. Does this sound familiar? The pattern has been repeated over and over throughout history. Greece did it. Rome did it. The Persians did it. The Chinese did it. The Muslims did it. And they did it in Europe. And we did it here. How does a supposed Christian nation who wants power and affluence do what our beliefs say we should have not done. How did we act like Egypt? How could Christian nations conquer, kill, steal, enslave, oppress? And I'll tell you how to do it. The first thing they had to do was to suppress and silence their own Christian consciences. 
And the way they did that was to dehumanize the people they conquered and enslaved. Our forefathers did what Pharaoh did. We created stereotypes, too, about what an African was or an Asian was or a Native American was. All created to justify the unjustifiable. And here's the real problem. And you've got to get this. Because our nation is in trouble and being torn apart by this. And one of the main reasons it's going on is we don't understand the problem. I'm going to tell you the problem today. Long after the wars of conquest are over, long after slavery has ended, these dehumanizing stereotypes live on today. They are like an airborne virus that comes at us in a thousand different ways. Through TV, movies, books, schools, friendships, family, we breathe them in through the culture all around us. You see, I've grown to think that the word racist is not a good place to start about talking about race. What I think is really true is that every one of us have been racialized. Every one of us has breathed in the virus. We have breathed in these stereotypes and the lies of Pharaoh. Even people of color have. And these stereotypes sound a whole, like, whole lot like Pharaoh's, don't they? People of color are criminals. They're out of control. They're liars. They're lazy. They're lacking intelligence. They're lacking character. They're threats to national security. Does that sound familiar? I'll tell you who's a liar. The devil is a liar. And we have to detox ourselves from these lies. The devil has spread through Pharaoh. That's how, that's how powers and principalities work. They work through Pharaoh. And these stereotypes, by the way, they take on a life of their own. They operate on us consciously, but even more so, they operate on us unconsciously. We have all, me too, me too, every person in this room, Every person in this country, we have all been infected in different ways to different degrees. All of us have been racialized. Again, Curtis DeYoung, I used this example this summer, but, it, but it, it made such, it was such a good illustration. Curtis DeYoung is a champion of racial diversity. He is a champion of racial reconciliation. He's written books and books and taught and taught on it. And he said one day he went to Harlem to buy a hat for a friend. And he said, for some reason, all of the tapes in my mind that contain negative stereotypes about African Americans were triggered. I quickly tried to rein in these out-of-control emotions as I searched the marketplace for the hat. I told myself I had no reason to fear. This was a safe sec section of Harlem. No one was acting in a threatening manner. People were just going about their business. I even realized my emotions as I walked down the streets of Harlem. My imagination had been seized by a deeply ingrained stereotype that I had somehow absorbed from the culture I grew up in. The people I saw in the marketplace did not want to hurt me simply because I was white. Yet despite my best arguments, I was unable to free myself from what had become an overwhelming sense of fear. As I left, I was disturbed by the fact that my knowledge and beliefs had not been able to prevent my emotional response to the situation. Did you hear that? That I was disturbed that my knowledge and beliefs, which were the opposite, had not been able to prevent my emotional response to the situation, which was fear. 
I believed in reconciliation. I did not accept as valid any of the stereotypes that had so permeated my mind in Harlem. When I came to understand was that I needed to be healed from what I had inherited through the legacy of being born white in America. Somewhere buried deep within my inner being, I had been scarred by these inherited beliefs and irrational fears. For some reason, on that beautiful day in Harlem, the wound emerged from its hiding. And please hear this. It didn't emerge as hate. It didn't emerge as anger. It emerged as fear. These stereotypes were in him, deeply embedded in him in ways he did not realize. This is what we face. A champion of racial reconciliation realized that he had been racialized anyway. A month or so ago, a black social worker was shot in the leg by a white police officer as he lay on the ground with his hands in the air shouting, I am not a threat, I am unarmed. Someone had called the police because a white, mentally challenged man this social worker was working with became out of control. He was the person shouting and swearing and behaving badly. Still, the officer looked at both men and shot the black man. When asked why, the officer's initial response was, I don't know. Later, the officer, who was standing about 10 feet away from both men when he fired, said he meant to shoot the white man, but he missed. That's a really bad shot. I would suggest the police officer, like Curtis DeYoung, was controlled by his infected unconscious too. That these stereotypes are buried so deep inside us and they are so powerful. And you know when they really take on life? Particularly in times of perceived stress or danger. We see it on TV all the time. Please hear this. Because if you don't get this, we can't solve the problem. Racism is not first and foremost about hatred or violence. It is about the lies of Pharaoh. It is about, the, it is about dehumanizing other people. It's about false images of other human beings cultivated for 400 years infecting us all. Dr. Jack DeVidio, the professor at the University of Connecticut, has researched racism for more than 30 years. And he estimates that up to 80% of white Americans have racist feelings they don't even recognize. DeVidio shared, we've reached a point that racism is like a virus that has mutated into a new form and we don't recognize it. He added that 21st century racism is different from that of the past. Hear this, please get this. He said, contemporary racism is not conscious. Most of it, some of it's conscious, but most of it we're carrying around and don't know it. It is not accompanied by dislike or hatred or rage or violence. It's not that way. And it gets expressed in indirect, subtle ways. Things like who gets a job or a promotion or an apartment or who gets followed in a store or who gets pulled over. These are the subtle ways that it expresses itself. And the question for us today is, what are we going to do about it? How do we detox? Let's start with going after the disease instead of hating each other. How about that?
Does that sound Christian to you? Let's start with going after the lies instead of being mad at each other. Let's dismantle the lies one at a time. Let's face what's inside us honestly. You have to face it. You got the disease. I'm sorry. You got the disease. Let's face it. Let's quit pretending that all this goes away if we ignore it. That's the American stand. If we just don't talk about it, it'll no, come on. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you want to start spotting what's inside you, when it comes to race, let me ask you this. Here's where you first start looking. What makes you afraid? That's the place to start. Or where do you think you're better? Or normal. I'm normal. Why can't those other people be normal like me? We're offering more than equals at the start of October in our church. And it's a safe place to explore some of the questions or ask the questions you're afraid to ask. Because, brothers and sisters, the only way we're going to solve this is if in the spirit of Jesus Christ we start talking to each other. Because all these lies, these stereotypes, they exist because of ignorance. And centuries and centuries of direct and indirect indoctrination. And ignorance exists. You know why ignorance exists on this? Is because of the functional segregation that still separates this country. White people and Latino people and black people. We don't talk. We're not friends. We, we go to different schools. We live in different neighborhoods. And the ignorance stays on. And then the racialization stays intact. Here's my research has shown that that honest relationships with people of another ethnic group is the great antidote to the disease I'm talking about. When you find out, oh, I'm dealing not with a stereotype, I'm dealing with a real human being who's a lot like me in a lot of ways. Here's my advice to every one of us. Even though you come to this church, it doesn't mean you have friends of other ethnic origins in this group, here's my suggestion. Break up your own personal segregation. Break it up. As Pastor Sedra says, get to stepping. <laughs> Face what's really in your heart. Confess it. Challenge it. Change the stereotypes because they are there. And together we can show the world as the body of Christ a better way. You, and by, by the way, this is not going to just happen. You must be intentional about this process or things will remain the same. This, by the way, is exactly one of the two major things the New Testament church did. It got people into the kingdom of God. It got us right with God through Jesus Christ. And it got us right with each other through Jesus Christ. People of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Male and female, Scythian and Greek. It got all kinds of people together who never would have been together. Hallelujah. And it created a new kingdom. Because we're the only ones, I believe, that have the spiritual resources to cleanse the human heart. We're the cure. But I tell you what, there is no cure if you don't know the problem. And most of us go, well, if I don't hate, I don't have a problem. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. Switching back to Moses per se, 
Moses obeyed God, and all hell broke loose. Moses could have quit then and there. He could have run back to the wilderness from where he had come and started tending sheep again. Instead, it says, I love this phrase. I love this phrase. In verse 22, it says, Moses returned to the Lord. And you know what he did when he returned to the Lord? He started talking to him. And you know how he started talking to him? He started complaining. And he said, I did what you said. And look what you got me into and us into. And you still haven't rescued us. What's up with that? He said, and by the way, I told you I'm not the man for the job. Everything's going wrong. I blame you, God. By the way, believe it or not, this was a great prayer. <laughs> Moses, despite everything, believed that somebody was listening. Moses, despite everything, believed that God still cared about him in Israel. Moses, despite everything, believed that God could take what he was dishing out. Moses believed God could hold all of him. Faith and doubt, anger and love, hopelessness and faith. I don't know about you, but I rarely pray without a mixed bag of emotions. I rarely come to God with pure faith. I, you know, I'm, I'm messed up. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be funny, but anyway, I'll... I'm like the man who brought his epileptic son to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Henry Nouwen in his book, The Road to Daybreak, put it beautifully this way. I love how he put it. He said, so I am praying, Lord, while not knowing how to pray. Do you ever pray like that? I do all the time. And he says, I am resting in you, Lord, while I am feeling restless. I am at peace while still tempted. I am safe while still anxious. I'm surrounded by a cloud of light while I'm still in the darkness. I'm in love while I'm still doubting. Do you understand what he's talking about? If you have any self-insight, you do. Okay. <laughs> Folks, God can hold all that you are because that's all we can bring to him anyway. Trust that. Believe that. Moses did. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane did. Paul with his thorn in the flesh did. Give all, Christ all your soul and see what happens. And it just may open up your soul to hear God in new ways, to see his hand at work with eyes wide open. Pray with ambiguity. And just perhaps God will give you clarity. Here we see Moses on the way to receiving a great gift. Moses, you know what his great gift was in all of this? Moses came to the end of himself. Moses hit bottom. This is when God does some of his best work. When we can't fix it, and we know we can't fix it. When we are lost, and we know we're lost. These, for God, our ideal working conditions. These are the moments when we take our eyes off ourselves, our problems, and our answers and put them directly onto Him. 
I love how Anne Lamott writes about these times. She says this, There is freedom in hitting bottom, in seeing that you won't be able to save or rescue yourself, your daughter, her spouse, his parents, your career. Relief in admitting you've reached the place of great unknowing. This is where restoration can begin, because when you're still in the state of trying to fix the unfixable, everything bad is engaged. Worry. The chatter of your mind, the tension in your body, all the trunks and baggage you carry from the past. It's exhausting. It's crazy-making, she said. When we think we can do it all ourselves, fix, save, buy, or date a nice solution out, it's hopeless. We're going to screw things up. We're going to get our tentacles wrapped around things and squirt our squiddly ink all over so that there is even less visibility. And we're going to squeeze the very life out of the very thing we're trying to save. Surrender means we ask that something give us the courage to stop in our tracks right where we are and turn our fixation away from the Gordian knot of our problems. We stop the toxic peering and instead turn our eyes to the hills from whence comes our help, someplace else, anything else. Maybe this is the shift. Maybe it's only a shift of eight degrees, but it is still a miracle. It is one of those miracles where your heart sinks. I love this phrase. It's one of those miracles where your heart sinks because you think you have lost. But in surrender, you have won. We win by surrendering. It's called a paradox. In surrender to Christ, you always win. John Ortberg talks about Frank Laubach. Laubach devoted his whole life to learning to focus on Jesus. Laubach was a sociologist, an educator, a missionary to the Philippines in the early 20th century whose career fell apart when he was in his 40s. He lost the job he most desired. His plans for the Maranao people of the Philippines were utterly rejected by higher-ups. He and his wife lost three children, three children to malaria. And his wife was so broken by it Laubach would not leave the Philippines. She took their remaining child and moved a thousand miles away to protect her last child, leaving him desperately lonely. And in deep despair, Laubach took his dog Tip and went to the top of Signal Hill, which overlooks Lake Lanao. And he wrote this, Tip had his nose up under my arm and was trying to lick the tears off my cheeks. My lips began to move and it seemed to me God was speaking. My God, my child, you have failed because you do not love these marineros. You feel superior to them because you are white. If you forget you are an American and think only how I love them, they will respond. Laubach said, I answered back to the sunset, God, I don't know whether you spoke to me through my lips, but if you did, it was the truth. My plans have all gone to pieces. Drive me out of myself and come and take possession of me and think my thoughts in my mind. And this was the beginning of one of the remarkable spiritual experiments of the 20th century. Laubach devoted the rest of his life to, in seeking to live each moment in a conscious awareness of God's presence and carrying out a rich friendship with him. He tried to hear vo God's voice in everything and it changed the world. Frank Laubach's writings and the things he did literally reached millions of people. But it came 
All of this change came when he gave up. And when he said, I have blown it and none of my plans have worked. And remember what the prayer? That's when God said, that's where I need you. I need you coming to me. There is no substitute for this kind of surrender. No therapy can replace it. No positive thinking can be a substitute. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Do it over and over again. Look and keep looking at him for everything in everything. And hitting bottom helps you do just that. It teaches us to look for something in the, that this world can't deliver. It teaches us to depend on something beyond ourselves. When every other resource is gone, when every other prop is kicked away, when every other crutch is broken, brothers and sisters, what Moses teaches us, there is a time when you're backed into a corner and all you can do is cling to God, cling to Him. That's what Laubach discovered. That's what Moses discovered. Cling till you hear from God. Cling till you get an answer or you are the answer with God's help. Cling till the problem gets smaller or you get bigger. Moses prayed his brokenness. Did you notice it was only after he prayed his brokenness that he could hear the voice of God? Moses prayed his helplessness. It was then he could see what God could do. I love that phrase. Moses returned to the Lord. And God spoke to him. Chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore, what did Moses hear? Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the, under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. That happened after a really good Gripe session with, G, with the Lord. I love how Brennan Manning sums it up this way in his paradoxical blessing. He says, may your expectations all be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness. That you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child and can sing and dance in the love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May you get so dependent on God that you can dance. Where is your bottom this morning? Let me rephrase that. <laughs> I know who's going to come talking to me too. That's the sad part. What, what can't you fix this morning? How's that? What can't you heal? Have you considered waving a white flag and giving it to Jesus? Have you considered giving up, trying to do what you can't do, and asking Christ to take over? Have you considered surrendering your life and your problems to someone smarter and bigger than you who can do all things? Try that and see what happens. Because where we end, this is a spiritual truth. This is what this text teaches us. Where we end is where God's power begins. Where we stop 
that is where Christ says go. Where we die, that is where Christ resurrects us. Where we surrender, God's power starts to flow. What do you need to surrender to God today? What problem have you been working on and working on and working on, and God is just standing there patiently waiting for you to give it up and give it to Him? Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes. I want you to give to Jesus that unsurrendered problem. I want you to give to Jesus that part of your heart that is unsurrendered. I want you to give up this morning what you can't fix. Take our lives, Jesus. Take all of our lives. Every part of us. Help us, Lord, to know when to wave the white flag and say, take over. And really mean it. And really let you do it. And really start listening to you. And really start obeying you. And really start depending on you so that we can be as powerless and helpless as a child dancing in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to stand. I'd like our intercessors to come forward. We will pray with you about anything.